Dr. Beth Sarah Wright is an author and speaker and has written five books, including her latest, Dignity, Seven Strategies for Creating Authentic Community. And this lays out a comprehensive lens through which to create authenticity. Now, that's what we're going to be talking about to her today. But let me tell you a little bit about Beth Sarah Wright. A former college professor at NYU and Spelman, she's currently the Director of Enrollment Management at Holy Innocence Episcopal School in Atlanta. She's an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Emory School of Medicine. She's got a PhD in Performance Studies from NYU, a Master's in Anthropology from Cambridge University, yes, the big one in England, and a BA from Princeton in Sociology and Afro-American Studies. Now, Dr. Wright is originally from Jamaica, which you'll hear in her beautiful lilting accent, and she has lived and studied all over the world, from Edinburgh, Scotland, to San Juan, Puerto Rico. She's married to Robert Wright, and he is the Episcopal Bishop of Atlanta, and their parents to five children. And just hearing that makes me feel as if I'm an underachiever of the greatest <laughs> degree. <laughs> you know, I think everything was fine until I got to, she's the mother of five children. And I thought, okay, well, all that other stuff is great, but the mother of five children on top of it, very yeah. impressive. Thank so you. I am delighted to have with me today, Dr. Beth Sarah Wright, the author of a number of books, but the latest that we're going to talk about today is called Dignity. And I am just so excited to get your insight. So thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I am just thrilled to be here. And what an honor to have this conversation with you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. I've read the book cover to cover. So there are too many things to unpack in great detail. So I'm hoping you'll come back and do another podcast with us. But I'd like to start from the beginning of the book when you talk about our dignity being violated in large ways and small ways. And then in order for us to understand that, can you give us what your concept that you talk about in the book, what is dignity? For me, my understanding of dignity is the unassailable, immeasurable, unwavering part of all of us that makes us human. It's the part that is our soul. It is tied up into who we are, who we've become, who we are as human beings, and it has vast potential. I am a person of faith, and so I do understand that another way of understanding is, is that God has breathed this, it's a breath of God inside of us. It is a divinity that we all have. And if we take it out of the context of faith and theology, it is that part of us that knows we are human. It's that part of us that, that yearns to be recognized, to be seen, to be fully under, understood as a human being. And it has vast potential. No matter what we do, and we do all sorts of things as human beings, we make mistakes, we hurt others, we love, we, we are saddened, we have feelings, all of that. But that does not take away from what makes us human. And what is inside of us is so broad and has so much potential that no matter what we do, we cannot change or influence the fact that we have dignity inside of us. 
And when you spoke about it being a person of faith, that was my thought. It's the soul. Like, no matter what our personalities are covered up with, and some of it isn't pleasant, that underneath that, we're all children of God. Is that what the dignity piece is, is really seeing, I see God in you. Yes, it is. It is. I see that in you. I see what makes you human, what makes me human. We share that. We share that. Now, we may have different opinions and different lives and different jobs and different backgrounds and different experiences in life. We may look different, believe different. We may do all of that, but there's one thing that we all have in common, and that is our dignity. I love this explanation of it because uh, it's not simplistic, but it's easy to understand. And then the other thing, too, for the sake of vocabulary for your book, is if you'll explain the way that you see respect, uh, not the, oh, you have to earn my respect piece, but, but the way that you approach the word respect. So I am a lover of words. And so I love to look at the etymological understandings of words because it helps to give insight. And when I looked at the etymology, the etymology of respect, re, again, or its repetition, and spect from the Latin word specere, which means to look at. And to me, respect is a verb. It is something that is not relegated to just people that we feel deserves a certain amount of looking again. We must look again at everyone regardless, not just oh, only the people who have pursued actions or uh, activities that we think are laudable or good or anything of that we put something on them. Respect is something that is for everyone. We look again at everyone to see beyond what we think we see. And we think we see, and we all have these, we have biases, we have assumptions. Every single one of us has them. We look at a person who dresses a certain way and we have, oh, we understand that person. They, they, they're. Or we look at somebody who is older and we have assumptions about age. We look at someone who's really young, we have assumptions about age. We look at someone who's tall, we have assumptions about that. We have lots of assumptions. It is important and incumbent on us to look beyond these fabricated assumptions, biases, to see what is human and what, what that vast potential is. There's so much possibility in that. And it opens up new understandings because we are often blinded by or short-sighted by these biases, these preconceived notions, which are only just figments of our imagination anyway. Let's say I'm having a hard time seeing the dignity in someone because I don't like their behavior. So I want to re-look at them. What might that look like to help me put aside my prejudice, my biases, my assumptions? It takes a lot of work, internal work. That's dignity work. It takes internal work to say, hold on, say to yourself, self, let me hold on a second. I might not appreciate this person's behavior. I might not appreciate what this person has done, but that doesn't take away from them that they are children of God, just like me, and that they have the potential to be forgiven. They have the potential to change their mind, to, to redress, to have some form of reconciliation, 
to um, explain to me why they did what they did. I have, they have that and I have to give them that. I have to respect them enough to do that. And if it's not a possibility for someone to make redress or say they're sorry, make amends, they, let's say it's a public figure and I want to get to a place of seeing them as a child of God, is it just a matter of saying, I don't know their whole story, how they got to be the way they are, but underneath all of that personality is a child of God? Well, yes, it's as simple as that. It's not easy. It's not easy work. And it doesn't mean that at the end of my respecting that I'm going to understand or be or agree with you. I may disagree with you until the day that I die. That's okay to disagree with, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to completely erase you from any possibility of understanding you. I am not going to take that away because that is being short-sighted. I want to still see beyond. And that would also fly in the face of dignity. Yes. And that is a violation. That is also a violation. You would be violating someone's dignity too if you are not able to see it, to look again at it, to understand it, to try and see beyond. So the violations you're talking about can be as simple as not being willing to look beyond the surface. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have to say that it's easier to understand through stories. And here's a story that I'm always so remarkably um, astonished by. And that is with the stories of victims and perpetrators of of violence in uh, the Rwanda genocide. 20 years later, many of them, people who were victims and the perpetrators of the violence against those, came together to share stories, to say, you hurt me, you killed my father, you raped my mother, you murdered my child. And the other person to say, I apologize, I am sorry, and to find common ground. That seems almost impossible, but they did. Can you imagine? They did that. And they were able to have new conversations and new understandings. It did not mean that they were best of friends. It did not mean that all of a sudden they love each other, but they found they were able to see each other's dignity. Whereas before they were not able to. That to me is remarkable. I was in a group last night and we were talking about doing this in reference to racism with different processes of reconciliation and, you know, modeled on that, like South Africa and Rwanda. Uh, Do you think this could be helpful in America? Yes, very much so. And if so, since you're a good storyteller, (laughs) tell us what that would look like to you? I cannot say what that would look like, but I can say and offer and encourage that we find spaces in which we foster dialogue, which we foster conversation, where we foster even telling stories. Because stories in many ways can be transactional currency for dignity, because they can help to understand each other. They can. But in, in telling stories, there's also amount, an amount of humility in telling stories. We are also 
encouraged to tell the worst part of our stories. We are also encouraged to listen actively, to be curious, to develop a sense of courage and to grow in our capacity to have courage and to grow in our competencies to listen and to shift and to change. Dignity work, as I explain it in this book, is also about comfort being uncomfortable. We're going to be pushed into uncomfortable spaces. There is no guilt or shame here or blame. We don't want to put those judgments on these. We want to listen, we want to learn, and we want to be open to growing in our capacity and our courage to have these very difficult conversations. Another part of that is that we have to be willing and able and comfortable with losing something, with loss. And I love the way you talk about this in your book, about the loss and the grieving and then the starting anew. Could you speak to that just a little bit about that process? Because I found it fascinating because we often, I find at least, I want to skip past the grief and get right to the good stuff. Like, okay, I left that. It's fine. It's over. But in growing, we must grieve. Yes. In growing, there are going to be parts of us that are going to be left behind. What was comfortable? What was our status quo? What was our comfort zone? That's going to change. And we're going to lose that. And we have to step out into new territory and to be okay with that. But we need to nurture that loss. We can name it, you know. We can name the loss. I felt, and this happens in all sorts of different ways, conversations with your spouse, conversations with your children, conversations with your colleagues, conversations about particular challenges you may face in an institution or an organization as you try to change something. Things will be different. That means that you're going to have to name the loss. This is what we're grieving here. Part of the reason we don't want to step out of our comfort zones is that, that there's going to be loss. So how do we name it, grieve it, recognize it, respect it, even look again at the loss? We need to look at it and to understand what is it that I'm feeling in my belly? Why is it so hard for me to let go of this? What am I getting from this? And why is it hard to let go? And what do I need to do now as I move into new territory? Where do I need to grow, as in the G in dignity? Where do I need to nurture? What do I need to nurture this new place that I'm in right now? What do I need to put in place to support me, to support us, to support this new conversation, this new way of being? How can I do that now? One of my favorite parts of the book was when you were talking about the identity of the I, when you said, am I willing to orient my work and attitude to achieve that? And if you do connect with the identity, then you're presented with the challenge. Either you get on board and you go with it, or you say, I can't get on board with this. That is very cool because you give people the option to say, I, I can't buy into this. I'm peace out. Well, unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm, in many ways, I think I'm trying to pattern myself off of God. God gave us free will. There's free will here. But apart from that, we are individuals. 
we have choice. Dignity is about choosing. It is intentional. This is intentional work. It is choice. That means you have agency. And if you decide that this is not work that you are going to engage in, then you have the right, certainly, not to engage in that work. But you cannot continue to be a part of a larger system which is engaging in that work. You're going to have to say, well, this is not where I need to be. I need to be where I need to be and, and move on. I'm, I'm sorry, this is where we are heading. And if you are not on that ship, if you're not coming with us in this direction, then maybe this is not the best place for you. There, that was the next question, because that does happen. Sometimes people will talk the talk, but they cannot or will not, whatever, walk the walk. And so how do you as a body say, hmm, we notice you're not on board. And ask the question, if this is the direction, and that's part of the integrity audit, that's the other eye, the integrity piece. And I talk about having an integrity audit in your system, in your organization, in your group, in your family, in your institution. And those are the sorts of questions we need to ask. Are we doing what we say we're doing? Are you on board with this? If this is our mission, this is our value, where does this particular decision play into that? Oh, so this is not really in line with that. Maybe this is not the decision we need to make as an institution or as a community or as a family. This is not in line. So we need to also question those things. We need to step back and to look and to try and be as objective as possible. Are we doing what we say we're doing? And we, in recent months, we have been, many institutions have been faced with that question. Many, because it's come to light that there's certain um, revelations in their institutions or in the direction that they were going that is not in line with respecting dignity. It is not in line with who we say we are. And we have to make some changes, bold changes even. And in making those changes, there's going to be loss. People may not like it and people may not understand it, but it, it's necessary. And you do address this early on in your book, but with the Black Lives Matter movement, not you didn't reference that specifically, but in the Black Lives Matter movement, I've heard people say, if we would just all be kind to one another, that's good enough. We just live by the golden rule. Can you explain from the dignity lens why that's not good enough? There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot. Kindness is wonderful. And it's such a great thing, a great value, great, great attribute to have. Absolutely. But there's a lot of work to be done. Part of the identity, the I in identity, is about looking at um, the DNA of many of our uh, institutions or organizations. What was the founding DNA? Let's look back into a historical audit. Let's look at our history. And maybe even there might be some very unflattering parts of our history. And that's okay. We just need to be able to see it and to recognize it and to name it. And then to be able to say, well, there may be new negotiations here, new narratives that we are creating. We can grow from where we have been and it's okay to change. Or we can use our founding DNA to inform where we are today. That's not just kindness, that's work. Why in dignity, the why refers to yield. That to me is about data. I'm a sociologist and an anthropologist. 
And surely going and visiting different communities and cultures and understanding, I could just be as kind as ever. That doesn't make a difference. I want to be able to understand. And how are we going to ground our work? How are we going to ground our growth? We have to look to some data. We've got to understand there is meat on the bones. This is not, dignity work is not an invitation to just be kind. It is not ethereal. It is grounded, grounded in real data, facts, history, narratives, money. It's grounded in real, tangible things. And I think that helps keep the reality piece intact. I knew someone once who was kind of a spiritual advisor for me money-wise. And I was like, how do I know what's the right way? And she said, God's in the numbers. Sit down and run the numbers. And I thought, oh, that just sounds so like ungodly. But I think it's what you're saying. Look at the data objectively and then see, are there more black men incarcerated than white men? And if so, why? Yes. Let's try to understand. Let's look to the information, look to the facts, and look to the interpretation of them too. I think it's important to, to see that they're, one of the more difficult things for people to understand sometimes is something like systemic racism. For example, um, there are understandings or feelings, perhaps interpretations that racism is something about I don't like you, therefore I'm going to treat you badly or something like that. Sometimes that it is not about that. Sometimes it's simply about not seeing, not seeing, not seeing, or not seeing beyond um, to, to be able to recognize someone's dignity or to be able to recognize the dignity, which is the vast potential and possibility in a particular institution and who occupies that. There are so many, it is, it's such comprehensive work. And, and I, I, I hope that we don't um, get stuck in thinking that it's so small and that, that it's personal. Uh, there are decisions that are being made every day that are influenced by many factors. And if we don't look at the factors and look at the, the influences, maybe we will miss out on seeing some real truth. Dr. Wright, I could talk to you for hours about this, so I truly hope you'll come back. But before we go, I have a question because you're talking about the work. Is this dignity work something we can do by ourselves, or does it help to have someone work us through this professionally or a support group? Or, Well, I love that question because every time I had a presented on dignity before I put these words together in, in a book, someone would come up to me afterwards and say, almost inevitably would say, how do I uh, implement dignity in my own life? They would say that. So I, this is my, my thought about dignity. First and foremost, this dignity lens, even though I am referring to institutions and the importance of this conversation in institutions and the institutional identity, I want to say first and foremost that dignity work belongs to everyone. It is democratizing work. 
It is not necessarily work that has to be top down. So a leader or someone with formal authority has to be able to implement this. No, I think that we can all take up this work. And what a powerful thing that would be if in our own cubicle, at our own desk, in our own office space, we are taking up this kind of work. As an institution, if there is a smaller group and then we decide that this is something we need to do, we need to look at the tenants, all seven strategies, and we need to work together. We need to know what they are and what sorts of questions that are being asked for each with each tenant. If this is our issue, we want to be whatever it is, we want to maximize our business, whatever, whatever it is, how does dignity play into that? So you might decide as a group, hey, let's just try this. Let's talk about dignity in this particular context. And let's use this lens to see if we can perhaps narrow the gap between who we want to be and who we are right now. It's very interesting. That's what dignity lens is for me. It is a tool to say, how do I get to where we want to be from where we are right now? I think nearly every individual Every community, every group, every institution asks that question. How do we get to where we want to be from where we are right now? And Dignity Lenses helps to bridge that gap. It's beautifully put, and and that's why I hope you'll come back again so we can talk about each piece of it, because it is a process. In the story that you tell at the beginning of the book, they had the idea, the end goal in mind, but the way they went about it didn't have the best outcome. And you talk about how it could have gone differently. And I think your book really will work on an individual basis or for an institution. So I am just delighted. The book is Dignity, Seven Strategies for Creating Authentic Community. And I think it's a, a lot more focused than just Ooh, dignity. (laughs) It's very precise and you lay it out beautifully. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for the work you are doing. And I, I look forward to connecting with you again at another time. So if people would like to buy your book, Dignity, should they go to the churchpublishing.org website? Well, to purchase the book, I would love to reference the church publishing web- website, but it's also, but the book is available anywhere you buy your books. Okay. okay. <laughs> so you can really find it anywhere, but um, certainly the church publish because of the publishing, I, I, I often, you know, reference that, but the website is there. You can learn more about my other books there. So bestsarahwright.com would be great. Um, And also it's an opportunity to uh, request speaking or any sort of consulting. If anyone wanted to bring me in to talk about the book, that's where that needs to happen at the website. And once again, Dr. Wright's website is Beth Sarah Wright. That's Beth, B-E-T-H-S-A-R-A-H-W-R-I-G-H-T.com. Thanks for being with us today on Alma Am I Racist? We appreciate your joining us. And if you'd like to drop me an email, you can do that at almaamiracist at gmail.com. And you can see the other podcasts that are available on almaamiracist.com or wherever you normally get your podcasts. I'm Lisa Smith Henderson. Thanks for listening to Alma Am I Racist?